On this episode of This Week in Linux, we have a monster of a show for you, with new releases from desktop environments like Mate and KDE Plasma, to distro news from MX Linux, Ubuntu, Project Trident, and Tiny Core Linux. In app news this week, we see new releases from Blender and OpenShot, and we've also got some interesting news from the Evernote team. We'll also talk about some updates from TLP, the Laptop Performance Project, and Waylon, the Display Server Protocol Project. Later in the show, we'll check out a cool gaming overlay called Mango HUD, and we'll discuss some legal news related to Mycroft AI and their fight against a patent troll. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network, and this is your weekly source for Linux good news. Wendy here from Hardware Addicts. Michael's done all the hard work scavenging the internet to find the best open source stories. You're listening to This Week in Linux. First in the show this week is some great news from the Mate team. So Mate Desktop 1.24 has been released after a year of development. It contains new features, bug fixes, and just general improvements. We're going to be able to cover everything because there's quite a lot. So we're going to do a highlights, basically. So some of the highlights are a new Mate disk image mounter utility has been added. A do not disturb mode for this, the notification system has been made. That's just great, especially for our podcasters. And a new date and time app have been added. There's been various tweaks for the high DPI support, acceleration profiles for the mouse app, and also some improvements to Wayland support. And there's also been something that's interesting because I wanted to talk about this in a general sense and also kind of like use it as a jumping point to talk about something else that's cool in Mate. And there's the ability to adjust the size of a win- invisible window resize border. So basically what it is is that when you used Mate Windows, when you used Mate, the windows had like this border where you could like resize the window with your mouse, but you have to hover over this one particular piece before it would pop up showing you that ability to resize. And now they're having they're making it possible for you to have a bigger border on that without actually changing the themes, which is a really cool idea. I do like that. But I wanted to give you a tip because there's a way to do that even if you don't have this version of Mate because uh, Mate, Plasma, and I think a couple other, I think XFCE and some other de- desktop environments have this ability. When you hold down Alt and then click right-click on the corner or on the side or top or bottom or one of the edges, it allows you to then drag and resize the window by holding Alt and using the right click on the mouse because you don't actually have to be anywhere near the border when you use this method. This is not available for all DEs, but it is available for a lot of them. So if whatever, try it out and see if it works on yours. Also, let, if it does work on yours, let me know uh, if it does. If, if you're not using Mate or Plasma because I don't know for sure about the rest of them, but these two do have that. So yeah. If you'd like to learn more about Mate Desktop 1.24, I'll have a link to the release notes in the show notes. Up next in the show this week is another desktop environment that can do that alt-right-click resize option, and that is KDE Plasma 5.18 LTS, or long-term support. And there's a lot of new stuff in here, bug fixes, improvements, and performance improvements, and all kinds of stuff, including new features. We'll get to those later. But first of all, we got Wayland fixes for KWIN, better support for fractional scaling on X11, improvements to search functionality. They now make it possible to see the low battery notification for Bluetooth devices, which is really cool. Better theme compatibility with GTK apps, including support for CSDs, which is great. 
I mean, not the CSD themselves. I don't really like those at all, but it's really great to have support for the CSD because they do exist and they are used even though I don't really like them. So it looks nicer on the KDE Plasma experience. If you're interested in why I don't like CSDs, feel free to leave a comment and I might do a video in the future explaining the problems I have with them. Anyway, let's move on. So a new global edit mode has been added so you can right click anywhere on the desktop and choose to config customize layout or configure the system and it makes it a lot easier to modify everything all at once, which is nice. It's something they I wish they have done a long time ago, but hey, it's there now. That's awesome. A new thing that I'm glad is here. I guess I mean it kind of might sound like this is sarcastic, but it's not. It's kind of fun. Uh, an emoji selector is now available and it has hotkeys so you can load it up anytime you want. And while I admit that's kind of ridiculous, I do use emojis a lot. Not a lot, but significant amount, okay? So, you know, whatever. I'm glad this is here. Also, KSISCAR Utility now shows NVIDIA GPU stats, and an optional user feedback slider has been added to the system settings panel, so if you'd like to help the project with some statistics about usage data and that kind of thing, you can do so by sending it to them. And KDE says about this, if you do decide to share information about your installation with us, none of the options allows the system to send any kind of personal information, so that is very important to point out. Uh, there's also a lot more tweaks and polishing all around. One of the things I want to talk about is this uh, data collection thing or telemetry thing. I don't think that they actually are doing anything wrong here because it's off by default, so the only way for you to get sent send data is if you choose to do so. I think you should choose to do so because the more data we have about users, the better the experience and the desktop experience can be overall. So I would suggest doing that. Uh, you can pick whatever. I like the slider uh, approach that they have because it'll let you choose what you're comfortable with rather than just sending everything. So that's really nice. So if you are comfortable with more lower levels, then do that. The more you have you are comfortable with, feel free to use the, send those as well. Uh, I really like the, that approach. I like to be more granular, maybe, in an ideal way, but I do like the slider approach so you don't have to send all of the information. But uh, I'm very comfortable sending this stuff because I looked into it. It looks like it's anonymized stuff, so I'll have to do more research into this because I haven't actually gone into the code about like, what it's sending, but it seems to be fine. Uh, but I'm glad, So I'm glad they're doing And another thing that they did in this latest release is add a night color mode, which is basically like removing the blue light from your monitor when you're at, you know, using it at nighttime. It's kind of like Redshift or other applications like that where it just kind of like lowers the blue light levels and it's more like a red tint. So it's just better for your eyes to help you sleep at night because, you know, you kinda, it kind of messes up your sleep rhythms with uh, blue light constantly in your face because it keeps you awake. So that's really cool that they added that to the system because I have been doing it in a lot, you know, messier way for a long time, so I'm glad it is now built in by default. So yeah, if you'd like to learn more about KDE Plasma 5.18 LTS, I'll have a link to the release notes in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimizing, managing, and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get all this plus access to world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. I'm a big fan of DigitalOcean, not just because they're a sponsor of the show, that's awesome too, but because I use them and I have been using them for years. Because they make it so easy to manage your droplets and the snapshotting system is so awesome to have. 
I mean, you can create backups and snapshots of the droplets before you do any upgrades. So you have a peace of mind that when you do the upgrade, even if something goes wrong, you could always just roll back to the previous snapshot and get back up and running in minutes so you can figure out what actually happened. Now, thankfully, I've never actually had to use those snapshots, but it's really awesome to know that I could if I needed to. Also, something that's really great about DigitalOcean is that DigitalOcean has over 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. And you can get started on DigitalOcean for free for two months with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash dln. Again, that's a $100 credit for free for two months on DigitalOcean by going to do.co slash dln. And thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show this week is Blender 2.82. So this actually contains over 1,000 fixes and a lot of updates. There's now UDIM and Pixar USD export. A new Mantaflow fluids simulation system has been added. Also, there's new fire and smoke simulation support, which is really cool because it allows you to have like a fire element inside of smoke to get a huge dynamic difference. Really cool. Uh, they also added AI accelerated denoiser on NVIDIA RTX cards. Better cloth simulation support, which is really important because cloth simulation is very important for uh, 3D models to make them look more natural. Uh, there's new sculpting tools new various uh, physics improvements, grease pencil improvements, cycle engines improvements, EV improvement, user interface tweaks, all kinds of stuff. Blender has been doing awesome since the latest 20 to the 2.80 uh, cycle. So the 2.81, 82, just lots of great stuff being added. And Blender is a super powerful uh, application. If you're not aware, not only can it do 3d models like this, it can also do motion graphics. It can do all kinds of stuff, including video editing. Now, to be fair, it is kind of a little bit involved in order to do some of these things, but uh, it is still a really awesome, powerful tool, and it's open source, free software, so this is a great project, and if you'd like to learn more about it, I'll have a link to their release notes in the show notes. Up next in the show is an update to the OpenShot video editor. OpenShot 2.5.0 has been released, and this is really cool because they've added a feature that we've talked to them about. We had Jonathan uh, from OpenShot on the Destination Linux podcast where we interviewed him about OpenShot. And it's really cool because he talked to us about hardware acceleration being added. And this release is the addition to the experimental hardware acceleration. And they say that you can get 30 to 40% faster performance working with MP4 H.264 videos by using this GPU acceleration, which is awesome. They've also added compatibility import for or import and export for Premiere Pro and Final Cut Pro using XML and EDL files, which is kind of amazing. Cause I'm, I I want to see how that works in comparison between the two because that you know that's crazy, uh, but awesome to hear that. They've also added a save recovery or save file recovery system so you can revert to a previous save point if your last save gets corrupted. The keyframe system now delivers real-time interpolated values up to 10,000 times faster, they say. You can now import saves from Blender 2.8 and above in the blend.blend format. Also, 2.8 refers to 2.80. Sometimes Blender terms are 2.8, 2 2.80, 2 2.82 for 2.82. You know, it's, it's not very consistent in that sense. Uh, they should, you know, and it's also weird that they have two point something, even though Blender's been around for like 30 years or something like that. Whatever. Blender's awesome. 
it's really cool that they've added support. I mean, they've already had support for Blender for a long time, but they've now added some latest version of Blender, so that's awesome. And they've also changed the way they're doing usage data because they used to do like a telemetry where there was like by default, they automatically selected that you would send the data to them. And if you didn't want to do that, you'd have to opt out. Now this gives you, this is making it the reverse where it's by default not on. So you have to opt in to do it. But it is worth noting that when, even when you did do it, they had anonymized the data. So there's no personal information kind of stuff sent. So, I mean, that's great. And they also seem to have actually applied, retroactively applied it to previous versions of OpenShot. So that's pretty cool. Uh, I've only like, it just seems like that they've done that. I uh, can't really fully guarantee it, but that's what it based on preliminary, you know, looking around is what it looks like. They've also added a lot of other lighter improvements like better SVG handling and thumbnail generation. So if you want to check out OpenShot 2.5, you can actually find a link in the show notes to the, the blog post, as well as the link for their download, because they use an app image, which is fantastic, meaning you don't have to wait for your repos to get the new version. You can just go download the app image and try it out right away. So that's pretty cool. And if you'd like to learn more about it, I'll have li- all these links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some interesting news from the Evernote team. So Evernote is one of the biggest note-taking applications and services available. It's a proprietary software, but the service has been around for a very long time, and it's probably one of the first ones to offer this kind of thing. But they've been around for a long time, and they're very popular, so a lot of people use them and have been wanting to use Evernote on Linux. And for the longest time, you couldn't do that without using some third-party tool or whatever. But in a recent blog post, Evernote CEO Ian Small revealed a plan for new clients on the 2020 update progress and road ahead blog post. And these news clients will include updates for Windows, Mac, and they also said yes, even Linux. So they've already have a client for previous versions of the other tools. You know, the other platforms had like Android, iOS, Windows, Mac. They had support, but they never made one for Linux. And now it appears that they are going to be doing that, which is fantastic. Now, it's not clear if it'll be a native application or an Electron app that just wraps it in like a web version. I'm leaning more towards the, the Electron thing, but, you know, it could either way. We don't, we don't know. But uh, I'm just going to take a rough bet on the Electron app. But whatever. I don't mind that either. But for now, there are third-party options that you can use like Nix Notes, Forever Note, Tusk, and some other stuff. But it is really cool for an official app from Evernote to be coming to the Linux platform. So I'm excited about that. I don't necessarily use it, but I'm great. I'm glad that it's coming because people who do use Evernote would be able to use Linux, and that's great. So, yes, if you'd like to learn more and read the blog post for yourself, I have a link to it in the show notes. Up next in the show is the housekeeping section. Now I'm going to get through this really quickly, but there are quite a few things I wanted to talk about. And first of all, the DL Podcast YouTube channel is now the DLN YouTube channel, which means it now has a consolidation of all the shows in the network in one place. Now I will still be posting content to this channel, Tux Digital, and it will continue to be the main channel for this week in Linux podcast. But this is a more of a new approach for a one-stop shop, so to speak, for all DLN content and a way to introduce people to the content that are on the, you know, they might not know about everything that's on the network. So this is a way to help make that possible. And in addition to the DLN uh, YouTube channel, we also are going to be having, currently already do, a DLN library channel, which if you're not aware, library is like a decentralized competitor to YouTube. And it's a really cool thing. It's a really cool platform. And all the content that's on the DLN network, as well as the DLN network, that's redundant, DLN YouTube channel, and the Tux Digital channel, 
have been put onto library as well, so you can check it out there. If you are uh, not watching the video version because you don't want to use YouTube and you still, but so that's why you're listening to the MP3, but you'd like to use a video, you can feel free to do that as well. We have a new channel on library, so that will help it for anybody who doesn't want to use YouTube but still want the video. And library describes itself as a secure, open, and community-run digital marketplace. Essentially, it's a competitor to YouTube that uses blockchain blockchain technology to power the platform. It's an interesting idea for sure. So if you want to check it out, I'll have links in the show notes for that. Also, be sure to check out the latest episode of Hardware Addicts. It's a new DLN podcast about computer hardware and technology. It's a really fun show about all sorts of stuff in computer hardware. And the latest episode, number three, covers routers, NAS. If you're not aware, that means network attached storage, a tip for beginners in choosing a camera, and a breakdown of PC cooling systems available to cool your computer. And one of the co-hosts happens to be me, so I might be a bit biased, but I think it's a pretty great show. So check it out. Uh, Go to DestinationLinux.network for more about that. Uh, DLN Forum is also something that's really awesome. If you'd like to join this week in Linux uh, community or the Destination Linux community, you can do that in one great place by going to the DLN Discourse Forum. On the forum, you can talk about all the great content available on the network, share tips and tricks you've found through your Linux journey, get help from a wide range of users, or just hang out with fellow Linux enthusiasts. DLN Forum is a great way to interact with me because each episode of the show is posted on the forum and comments are not only welcomed, but encouraged. Uh, The best thing about DLN Forum is no matter what user level you are, a beginner or a master pseudoer, you'll enjoy being a part of the forum because it's not just a discourse forum, it's a community. And if you'd like to become a patron to help make this channel, I would very much appreciate it. So finally, you can help make this show continue to to exist by becoming a patron of the Tux Digital channel. You can become a patron by going to tuxdigital.com slash Patreon or tuxdigital.com slash sponsors. And you also get rewards and different tiers depending on what level you are to get extra benefits and bonuses to be by being a patron. Uh, but by becoming a patron, you are directly helping me uh, finance the creation of this show and all of the other content on the channel. And to the awesome 80 patrons of the Tux Digital channel, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, thank you so much for helping me create this content. It means a ton to me. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. And I hope to be making a lot more. So yeah, that's the end of the housekeeping section. And I hope you found it useful. And I hope you check out the DLN forum as well as the other podcasts and everything. So yeah, let's get on to the rest of the show. Up next in the show is the latest release of TLP, and that is 1.3. TLP is a laptop performance management power tool, essentially. It's like they call it an advanced power management tool for Linux, so you can get the most out of your battery. It auto-detects between running on AC and battery, so it'll apply a power profile depending on which one you're doing at any given time. It's a really cool utility, and if you use a laptop, it's definitely worth checking out. So TLP 1.3 adds a new configuration scheme, a TLP stat improvements, and a workaround for laptops reporting incorrect AC or battery status, along with other improvements. There, and t- just a quick note, TLP is a terminal application, but there's a third-party app called T- TLP UI that uh, you, gives you a GUI option. Uh, that one actually hasn't been updated for the latest TLP 1.3, but it is likely it will get one soon because it's a pretty active um, third-party project 
because their last update they had was like a month ago, so it's more than likely they'll be having support for 1.3 fairly soon. Uh, but I'll have a link to both TLP and TLP UI in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of Wayland 1.18. So this adds support for the Mason or Mason build system. Auto Tools was being used, and it is still supported, but it'll be removed in a future release. They have added an API to for tag, tag proxy objects to allow applications and toolkits to share the same Wayland connection. Track Wayland server timers in user space to prevent creating too many FDs. And has added WL global remove as a new function to mitigate race conditions with globals. So that's nice. I've been doing a lot of improvements to the protocol. Uh, I'm actually wanted to cover this because one, it's an important project because Wayland is going to be replacing X someday. Not sure when, but someday. And I wanted to know what you thought about Wayland as a user. Have you do you use Wayland as your daily driver or you know on your daily driver? Do you have any interest in using Wayland? Do you, what distribution if you do use Wayland? You know the, all these kind of questions. I've actually created a forum thread on the DLN forum, so you can feel free to leave the comments in below on YouTube. But also I'll have a link to the forum thread where we talk about Wayland because I'm curious what your experience is with Wayland whether you use it now or have in the past, and what you think about it in general. So, you know, links in the show notes. Up next on the show is the distro news. And first up, MX Linux 19.1 is released. 19.1 is a refresh of 19.0. This release includes bug fixes, application updates, translation updates, and many more things, including a new third ISO called the hardware, the Advanced Hardware Support ISO. So, Basically, MX Linux is recognizing that there are users who are using advanced hardware like newer AMD and Intel hardware, especially with like AMD having a lot more hype in the past couple of years or so because they've been making like ridiculously good CPUs and stuff. So this is really interesting because they're making it you know an easier way for people who have that hardware to use the uh, support for those drivers and everything. So 19.1 includes this third ISO called Advanced Hardware Support or AHS. But in parentheses, they, they say it's pronounced Oz, so O-Z, Oz. But sure, let's go with that, which has the Oz repo enabled by default. It includes the Linux kernel 5.4, Mesa 19.2, as well as newer X server drivers and various recompiled apps that will utilize the newer graphics stack. Now, the MX Linux team does note that if you don't have the hardware, you don't necessarily need to use it. They say that Oz is a little untested, but the idea is that it will update, it will receive updates to the graphics stack over time. So for those who don't need the newer open source graphic graphics stack, there's little point to be using Oz. But it's really cool to be able to use it because if you do have later hardware like the latest Ryzen chips or latest Radeon cards and stuff like that, it is fantastic that it may, they are making it possible to use it because you know Debian's not known for having the most up to date systems and packages and whatnot so it having this based on debian kind of limits you in that fact that that fact but they're doing work to make it possible to use the newer hardware on it and i think that is awesome so or awesome i don't know i tried it was a bad that was a mistake anyway this, so this leaves them with three ISOs now, the 32-bit and the 64-bit regular version, and also this new 64-bit Oz version. So if you are using uh, Lure hardware, you might want to check out MX Linux now because you might have some good support and have like a good stable Debian base 
with it. So I like that. It's a really cool idea. I think MX Linux is a fantastic distro. So if you've never tried it before, be sure to check it out. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Up next in the show is Ubuntu 1804.4 LTS has been released. That's a lot to say. Ubuntu 1804.4 has a new support for a number of new Intel and AMD graphics chipsets. They've added some preliminary support for Wi-Fi 6 or 802.11ax, ButterFS swap file support, which is really nice. So they've also added support for uh, furthering the improvements to AppArmor and their security model by implementing some improvements to LXD performance with the ShiftFS file system. And they've also done a lot of other bug fixes and improvements. Uh, But there's some interesting stuff that happened in this. Well, first of all, 1804.4 includes the hardware and element stack. So this actually will be introducing 5.3 Linux kernel. So you get more support for hardware and, you know, lots of stuff because of that kernel version. But they've also... Uh, done something that's pretty interesting. So you'll, if you in the video version, if you look on the left side launcher, you'll notice that there's not an Amazon button, which is normally there, because they decided to remove the Amazon Link app thing that they've had for a very long time. They've had some kind of weird thing with Amazon for like eight years. It's interesting because when they first introduced it, they introduced something in a really weird thing in Unity, and it was like a a lens integration search results thing basically no one liked. There was even a lot of controversy around it because a lot of people didn't know what it was and just assumed the worst and assumed it was spyware for Amazon. So then that created this huge nonsense argument battle between whether it was spyware or not or, you know, whatever. And it still perpetuates to this day that people call it spyware and people say that that Canonical and Ubuntu had spyware. They didn't. I mean, just the basic rundown of it is that they sent the data to their own servers and then they like piped it through in a buffer server system to Amazon. So Amazon never actually had your data, but whatever, doesn't matter. It was still a bad idea and keeping it forever was kind of a bad idea, especially considering they could have just put the affiliate tag on a regular Amazon search in the Firefox browser or whatever. You wouldn't actually need that web app thing. But they are taking it out now, so that's good. It's interesting, you know, that they are decided to take it out now. But, uh, yeah, I just thought it was kind of a interesting thing to talk about because there's a lot of misinformation around that topic, you know, acting like it's spyware. It's not. I know there's going to be a lot of comments saying that it is, and they're going to have no evidence to say that it is other than people spouting nonsense years ago. Um, but whatever. So there's that. That thing has been removed. And also we got news about 2004, about whether or not what kernel version will be included in the 2004 release. Now, I'm kind of disappointed that it's not the latest version, but I do understand why they picked it. So 5.4 will be used in the 2004 release, not because it ends with 4, but because it's, uh, it's because the 5.4 release is an LTS version of the kernel, and it makes sense that an LTS version of Ubuntu would also use an LTS kernel. Now, there are uh, plans to have the hardware enablement stack enabled so people could install newer kernels if they wanted to, uh, if they want, if they had it enabled and everything. So that's not necessarily like they're going to stick to the 5.4 or anything. It's just by default they're going to start with that because of an LTS kernel. And that does make sense. So there you go. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about this release and the 2004 stuff, I'll have some links in the show notes to check out. Um, yeah, 
So yeah, links in the show notes. Up next in the show is Project Trident 20.02. Now, Project Trident has been around for a while, but it's been a BSD-based project for a long time. And this is the first official release image based on Void Linux. So this will be the first like stable release. They've actually had a couple betas or whatever, but this is the first stable release, or official release anyway, from the, the Project Trident that is basing on Void Linux. So this is really cool. I haven't tried it myself, but I do look forward to trying it out. Uh, the Project Trident installer supports four different installation levels. They have the Void version, which is only the base system from Void Linux, and ZFS-related bootloader packages are installed. The server, a CLI-based system with additional services and utilities installed from Project Trident, like Firewall, Cron, AutoFS, WireGuard, additional shell options, and some more stuff. They have a light desktop version, everything needed for a graphical desktop install using Lumina, which is a uh, Qt-based desktop environment that was originally built on BSD, but has been you know, worked around for being supported on Linux. And now because Project Trident is on there, it, of course, now is built for Linux uh, even more so. Uh, and there's no like extra fluff in general other than those things, like that. what's needed to use the system. And they also have another option called the full desktop, which is basically the light install version with a lot of other additional features like end-user utilities like Office Suite, Telegram, multimedia apps, and etc. So it's like the full desktop is just like the full ISO of a normal distro, and you can get even smaller and smaller and smaller if you wanted to do that. So it's pretty cool, and they say that these installation levels provide predefined list of packages to install for your user convenience. The install system can easily be changed afterwards using the built-in package system if you would like to do so. So I haven't tried Project Trident since it was in BSD, so I look forward to checking it out because I, I'm really happy that they decided to switch to Linux. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Linux, so uh, I'll be checking it out pretty soon. And if you'd like to check it out, I'll have links to it in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of 11.0 for Tiny Core Linux. Now, before you, we'll go into more details about what Tiny Core Linux is. But first of all, they've updated their BusyBox version and also their kernel version, as well as a lot of other things. But the kernel's updated to 5.4.3, so it's one of the latest versions, uh, one of the, the latest LTS version for the kernel. And they have uh, updated a lot of other things. But you may not have heard of Tiny Core Linux because it's not that popular, and uh, it's very specific use case. But it's really cool. So Tiny Core Linux is a minimal Linux operating system focusing on providing base system using BusyBox and FLTK. So Tiny Core is very apt for its name. It calls itself Tiny, and it really is Tiny. In comparison to other distributions, like for example, you know Ubuntu or OpenSUSE or Fedora, you're looking at around you know a little bit less than two gigs, maybe a couple more, a little more than two gigs of ISO space. And then you can see some distributions have up to five gigs of storage for ISOs, like size for their ISO, in order to uh, create the system with it. And Tiny Core is not remotely near that, not even a little. So, you know, some people, some distributions are worried about going over two gigs, going over four gigs, or whatever. And Tiny Core barely goes over 100 megabytes. And that's the biggest one. So we'll get into it. There are three different versions of, of Tiny Core. There's the Core, then there's Tiny Core, and then there's the Core Plus. So we're going to first talk about Core Plus. Now, Core Plus is a 106 megabyte ISO. It's an installation image, technically not a distribution. 
It is recommended for users who have access to only a wireless network, so it has more, more stuff in the ISO by default to make it easier to use. It also has support for people who have non-US keyboards, whereas the regular TinyCore only supports US keyboard by default to keep it super, super tiny. And uh, this includes uh, also the base core system and installation tools providing up to seven cho uh, choices of up to seven window managers, uh, wireless support with many firmware files and other stuff, and also a remastering tool and a lot of, you know, that kind of thing. So you can then build your system from there. Now, if 106 megabytes is too much for you, you could use the tiny core option which if you have a wired network connection, which would be the recommended option, you would need this for that. You wouldn't have wireless support for it. You could use the tiny core version. And this includes the base core system plus uh, X and some GUI extensions for the window manager or dynamic graphic graphical desktop environment uh, with FLTK and FLWM. So that version tiny core is 16 megabytes. So if that 106 was too much, you could go down to 16 or you could go down even further with the core base system, which provides only a command line interface and is not really obviously recommended for anybody other than experienced users, but command line tools are provided so that you can take extensions and create a system with a graphical environment or whatever. And you could use it for like servers or appliances and whatever kind of thing you wanted to do. And you could kind of build out from there. But the default package size for core or ISO size for core is 11 megabytes. So TinyCore is a very apt name. And if you'd like to check out TinyCore in their latest release of 11.0, then I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is an interesting topic because one, it's an annoying topic about a patent troll. And two, there was an update to the topic before I recorded the show which made it not really a topic because they dropped the lawsuit. But I want to cover it anyway because I wanted to cover Mycroft AI because it's a cool project. And also I wanted to cover uh, the patent troll being garbage patent troll because they're a garbage patent troll and they deserve to be uh, named Voice Tech Corp and specified that they are a garbage patent troll. So, uh, in my opinion. So, Voice Tech Corp is a garbage filth patent troll in my opinion that filed a lawsuit in East District of Texas, which is where all of the patent troll garbage goes. I don't why is that area even allowed to file lawsuits apparently at this point because it's like 90% or something of patent troll garbage. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So, Mycroft AI was being sued over like a claim of infringing two of the US patents that the patent troll filth garbage in my opinion Voice Tech Corp has. And these patents are for handling voice commands from a mobile device to remotely access and control a computer. Where Mycroft is a Linux-based voice assistant that responds to voice commands such as setting alarms, reminders, and searching the web. Essentially, this is a generic uh, patent that is a common sense basic thing applied to computer. You know, using your voice to do something, insert computer access. Uh, whatever. So Voice Tech Corp has previously offered to sell a non-exclusive license because they're so generous to Mycroft, but the CEO of Mycroft decided to ignore their emails and this made a lawsuit happen. So the lawsuit is seeking damages 
and the notoriously patent-friendly federal district court in eastern Texas. And uh, they didn't really specify exactly how much, but uh, Montgomery, the CEO of Mycroft, uh, declared he's ready to fight all the way, saying this is a textbook case of why the U.S. patent system is fundamentally broken, which, yeah, I agree. How can you have patents for things that are so like common sense basic things and all you have to do is add computer involvement and somehow it is now an invention like i mean apple has a patent on being able to swipe from left to right to open a phone like that why is that a patent this is so ridiculous software patents are ridiculous anyway he so he goes on to say software is math running on a microchip sure it's written in a particular language and that is copyrightable, but math is not patentable. Math is not an invention, right? Exactly. Anyway, so Voice Tech Corp's address appears to be in some kind of weird, random, non you know, some non place, like a sketchy place somewhere in Texas, so they can obviously afford, like, you know, file court papers and stuff. Uh, that's kind of what these patent troll companies do. You know, the garbage filled patent trolls, aka Voice Tech Corp, in my opinion. And they're. Uh, they they basically just take existing worthless patents and collect them all, and, and they don't basically do anything else except just that's what a patent troll is. Basically, uh, there's not really an actual definition, but essentially it is a garbage company that owns patents and does nothing else other than sue and try to squeeze money out of these companies because they're garbage filth. And uh, in my opinion, and Mycroft is a cool project. Because Mycroft is a voice assistant, kind of like Alexa or Siri or whatever, but it runs on Linux. And it also has uh, these devices that you can purchase that are Linux-powered. I think they even have Raspberry Pis in them or something, or at least at one point they did. I don't know if the latest ones do, but whatever. Really cool, um, really cool project. And I wanted to cover it because, one, Mycroft is cool. I wanted to cover that. And two, because patent trolls deserve to be pointed out as being garbage-filled patent trolls. I know I've said that many times, but you know, in my opinion, they are garbage-filled patent trolls. So the good news here is that the garbage-filled patent troll Voice Tech Corp, in my opinion, has decided to uh, drop the lawsuits because essentially what it happened is Mycroft said, "Oh, you're going to sue us. Well, we're going to fight you," because that's like their their mo of a patent of a garbage-filled patent troll is to uh, threaten the lawsuit then file a lawsuit making the company they're trying to get money from fearful of having to pay the lawyer fees and stuff and say, oh, well, we'll just pay you your license fee so that you'll go away, whatever nonsense. Now, Mycroft is not gonna, was not willing to deal with that. They were like, no, we're not paying you for garbage. What we're going to do is uh, we're going to fight you, and hopefully, I don't know if they're going to sue them back, but hopefully they would. Uh, but they said they were going to fight him in court, and then they voice tech corp, the you know garbage filth patent troll in my opinion. Uh, they decided to pull back and not actually do the lawsuit because, well, it didn't work. Their garbage filth patent troll at tactics didn't work, and that's good. I'm glad they pulled back, but they are still garbage filth patent trolls, so they deserve to be noted as such, in my opinion. That's it, I guess. I mean, there's there's no, there's no guarantee that these just because they dropped it, they won't ever ring it back up again. But because it was dropped by their, it wasn't dis, it was dismissed by themselves. They didn't actually like, you know, they could always just bring it back or whatever. 
but uh, I'm glad Mycroft is willing to stand up to them, and I hope other open source uh, software companies and, and projects are willing to do so as well, like, like the GNOME project is standing up against one right now. I think it's very important that we do because, you know, these companies, once they, you know, get their latches into the community, they're going to try to just bash them as much as they can because, you know, garbage fields, patent trolls, and whatnot, in my opinion. Up next in the show is Mango HUD 0.2.0. It's a Vulcan overlay layer, and Mango HUD is a modification of the Mesa Vulcan overlay. It's it's kind of a, it's a really interesting thing because it's kind of like uh, you know there's in Steam there's like a FPS overlay that shows you how many FPS you have at a current time. This gives you that and a bunch of other stuff too for Vulcan games. It works with both native and Wine slash Proton games, which is really cool. But what it does is it adds uh, FPS, temperatures, RAM, VRAM, and it does it gives the ability to do benchmarking on some games. The latest 0.2.0 version adds some GUI improvements, temperature reporting, and logging capabilities. So this is really cool because the logging capabilities allows you to send the data to people for helping testing or benchmarking or whatever. So you have all these different options. It also gives you the ability to force vSync and display the current time. It adds support for Zorin OS and Pop! OS in this, this latest build script. And it also adds something that's pretty interesting, which is a crosshair. Now, I don't know what that is exactly other than what I assume it is is for like FPS shooters where you have a crosshair in the middle of your screen. I don't know if that's actually what it is, but that's what it seems like it would be. And I wonder if that's like a, a way to make it easier to shoot stuff. I don't know. I don't know what else it would, would be to add a crosshair to a HUD but or an overlay, but uh, interesting either way. But this is really cool. Mango HUD is a really cool idea. I really like the fact that it's got all these different uh, all these different information you can have. So like benchmarking games would be really you know powerful. You'd have all this data to reference during like the actual gameplay and stuff like that. So Mango HUD is a really cool project. I'm glad it exists. And if you'd like to learn more and even try it, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel and the This Week in Linux podcast, we have multiple ways you contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And also, speaking of Destination Linux, check out the Destination Linux Network website by going to destinationlinux.network to check out all the great shows and content available to you there. And thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network, and as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.